Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, a senior fellow in the Americas program at CSIS and the host of the 35 West podcast. How professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. China has used several forms of engagement, including commercial, political, institutional, security, and people-to-people efforts to establish a comprehensive presence throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Intense engagement from a leading authoritarian power has elevated worries that the democratic traditions of the Western Hemisphere could be at risk, demonstrating that the contest between the U.S. and China is not only a clash between competing national interests, but also one of competing political values and space for economic engagement. Rather than seeking to curtail every aspect of China's engagement with the region, as this is both unrealistic but also likely to generate resentment from our Latin American partners, the United States should find a balance between curtailing aspects of China's engagement, insulating aspects of that engagement that are potentially corrosive to the democratic traditions of the hemisphere, and permitting other aspects, while mobilizing resources to provide viable alternatives in areas which the United States can compete with China. This week, we are joined by Pepe Zhang, Associate Director and Fellow at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsh Latin America Center where he leads the center's China-Latin America portfolio and coordinates the post-COVID prosperity portfolio. Pepe joins me today to discuss the broader terms of engagement between the United States and China in the Western Hemisphere. In this episode, we will outline the challenges to integrating China into U.S. grant strategy in the region, as well as sketch some potential options for a more holistic strategy to counter China's adverse impacts on Latin America and the Caribbean's fragile democratic institutions. Thank you for joining us today, Pepe. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure to be on the show. China's presence has expanded significantly throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, but the types of engagement and the consequences they present are often poorly understood, leading to misunderstandings between Washington and the region. What are some of the primary misconceptions when it comes to how the region views its relationship with China and how the U.S. views the region's engagement with China? Where is the United States talking at cross purposes with countries in Latin America and the Caribbean? Thanks, Ryan. That's a great question. And, and of course, thanks again for having me on this podcast. It's an exciting discussion and looking forward to hearing some thoughts from you as well. And just emphasize the importance of the question you just asked about this gap that we see between the regional perspective on engagement with China and obviously how we see it from D.C., the U.S. perspective on, on the same issue. And potentially, how do we bridge that? I think by and large, when we, when, when we think about where the U.S. is talking at cross purposes with countries in the region, the way I think about it is that the region tends to see China more perhaps through the lens of opportunities and collaboration, whereas the U.S. increasingly sees it more through the lens of challenges and competition. And I think both sides, to some extent, probably have some slightly distorted perception of China based on their perception there. And specifically, I'll give you two examples in terms of misconception. One is the way the U.S. think about things. And the example I always give is the dad trap diplomacy argument. It's a very common one. It's a very popular one, the one that's been used, especially in, in, in recent years. But the problem of making that argument in this regional context is that China really isn't a massive piece of the overall debt pie that we see in the region. And most of the countries do not have a China debt problem. And a few countries that do have significant China debt, these are countries that one way or another have other significant and broader economic challenges. And from a local perspective, when you talk to folks in the region and in, in these countries, They don't necessarily pin that down on China. So when the U.S. government official goes to the region 
and talk about the debt trap problem that China creates, presumably in the region. Sometimes governments really don't understand what they're fully talking about. I think that problem is perhaps more prevalent in some other parts of the region and more applicable there. But in this region, it doesn't resonate. So that's one misconception that I think I would highlight on the USG side. And certainly, I believe in my recent conversation with U.S. government officials, they've been much better and much more cognizant about that. And on, on, on the Latin American and the Caribbean side, I think there's a misconception, perhaps not necessarily a mis- misconception per se, but I would say that compared to the rest of the world, the discussion in our region uh, about China is relatively narrow. It focuses much more on the economic and development benefits of engaging with China, which, of course, tied into what I said earlier about, you know, the region seeing China through the lens of opportunities and, and collaboration. This is, you know, reasonable due to the fact that, of course, in my view, the, the relationship between China and Latin America and the Caribbean is by far mainly driven by economic and development engagement in, in that sense, at least in the past 20 years or so. And self-criticism here, because, you know, I think people like me, we try to focus on things that we spend more time studying, which is trade investment. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm partially to blame here, I guess. But going back to the early point, I, I think Latin American Caribbean analysts and analysis, I guess, on China-related topic, I would say perhaps need to catch up with the rest of the world is not the right way to describe it. But I think it could be broadened. So and here, I, I would like to quickly borrow a quick takeaway from one of your colleagues at CSIS from the China Business and Economics team, Ilaria Masoko. She was recently in South America. One of her takeaways from that trip, again, looking at this uh, topic, China Latin America topic from a global perspective, is that a lot of the top line issues that we see in the headlines here in this country, uh, in advanced economies, in many other parts of the world, about Chinese industrial policy, Chinese subsidies, these are massive topics but they rarely ever come up in, in a regional context in Latin America and the Caribbean. So I think there's a lot more that could be done, a lot more that could be said in that in that regard. And frankly, this is not necessarily a pro-U.S. or anti-China argument, so to speak. I think, you know, when regional stakeholders think about broadening their understanding of the relationship with China, this is actually this is actually helpful for driving towards a more candid and healthy relationship in the long term between China and Latin America and the Caribbean. A key first step to clearing up some of these misconceptions is identifying what Chinese engagement in the hemisphere truly means and where the major fault lines lie. In your opinion, Pepe, what are the U.S. red lines when it comes to China's presence in the hemisphere? Where should the United States be prepared to push back strongly against a problematic strategic development? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I think, you know, all of that needs to, this assessment obviously needs to come from like a clear-eyed analysis of what are the specific primary U.S. concerns with Chinese engagement in the region? And in a way, another self-criticism here, I might not be the best person to answer this because a lot of it seems to be much more related to security, uh, institutions, governance, certain related issues. And I haven't really spent too much time studying that, but hopefully I'll offer some thoughts that can help drive and at least you know provide some fodder for, for very smart and capable people, including Ryan and your team, who are, as you guys understand, and as you, as you study this very tough question, and the first thing I'll say is that these red lines and these areas of fault lines, however you call those, these they need to be very specific. And that's something that was certainly mentioned in your in your framing remarks as well. Uh, I think the, they either need to be very specific or they can lead to very specific questions, arguments, or asks. Uh, and I'm not just talking about industries, right? General arguments like, you know, don't work with Chinese technology or contract uh, con- construction companies. I think when U.S. government officials approach their counterparts in the region, they need to be much more specific by saying that, hey, we're concerned about the construction of a, a Chinese-supported facility here because it is very close to your country's strategic asset X, and that has national implications Y for your country and for the United States. 
or this particular Chinese company has done A, B, and C, and that's concern for us and for you for A, B, C reasons. And I think once again, my conversation with U.S. government officials recent years seems that they're increasingly understanding that, and that's the approach they're taking. So I think being specific about some of these red lines and specific issues and fault lines will be important. And I think the second part of it is also tying to the earlier question, which is you know when we think about these red lines, we also need to understand that. The U.S. red lines on some of these issues aren't exactly the same as the Latin American and the Caribbean ones. There is a gap between U.S. and Latin American Caribbean perspectives on some of these issues, and and that's very clear to me from conversations once again with governments from both sides. And one example that Ryan, you and I we have talked about was you know at a global level, taking a step back once again, we talk about when we look at some of the major U.S. complaints about China at a global scale in recent years. At least we hear about Xinjiang, we hear about Taiwan, we hear about Hong Kong. These are topics that rarely ever come up in the regional context when it comes to China-related discussions. And to your point, you know the U.S. can fight China on everything, and the region certainly doesn't want to necessarily pick sides or fight China on everything. So, you know, when identifying these red lines, the the second element I would emphasize is being very cognizant of the gap between U.S. and Latin American perspectives. And third, and perhaps the final thought I have on on these red lines is that we often talk about U.S. weaknesses and what the U.S. what China is doing better. But on the other hand, it's important to think about the sources of U.S. strength, right? Uh, and that's logical because once you define those red lines and once you decide that hey, this is where the United States government is going to push back against China, you need to reasonably offer alternatives, which is something that I think you and I often mention in some of these related conversations. And to me, one of the most important strengths and perhaps very underdated ones uh, on the U.S. side is the multidimensional nature of its relationship with the region. What I mean by that is, when you look at what China and what China has been doing in the region and Chinese engagement in the region, it is much more one-dimensional in the sense that you have very advanced economic and development benefits on the trade investment side. But when we look at the other aspects of Chinese engagement in the region, they fall very much behind in comparison. We can talk about security, we can help talk about information space. They might be fast growing, but in terms of the scale and magnitude, they're still very much limited at this moment. Whether that's compared to other aspects of the Chinese engagement, meaning economic trade investment, or compared to what the U.S. has with the region. So, you know, long story short, I think the U.S. has a richer, broader, and more diversified relationship. You know, we talk about security, migration, interpersonal, cultural, all that stuff. It needs to take advantage of that as as it designs some of these red lines in terms of related to China in the region. So, another related question, Pepe, is how much of China's engagement with Latin America and the Caribbean should the United States seek to curtail? Where should the United States seek accommodation or permit a greater Chinese role in the region instead? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I think that that question is perhaps related to our last one. I haven't identified any specific red lines in that sense, but hopefully, you know, uh, by advising the U.S. government to be more specific, to be cognizant of the different perspectives it might have compared to regional stakeholders on China-related issues, and and also thinking through some of its own comparative advantages uh, as the United States, uh, folks can can have a better chance at understanding and also that identifying these specific red lines. But I will add perhaps a couple of things on that. One is the messaging of it, right? I think you know the U.S. government needs to be very careful about how it crafts some of these messaging.、Uh, certainly, not coming off as selfish, right?、Uh, some of these economic development benefits are important for the region for reasons that we understand fully. So curtailing that perhaps will come off as being U.S. being very U.S. centric and U.S. selfish, in a way. And and generally speaking, when we think about terms of engagement, something that's critically important is that the U.S. obviously shouldn't be the one. Or the only one setting the rules of these engagements, right? These are these. This should be a partner. Should be a partnership-based approach. 
based on consultations, active and frequent consultations with Latin American Caribbean partners. And that means, you know, government, private sector, and of course, civil society. So that's something I would also mention. And then picking up on another point that you mentioned when you asked, you know, where should the United States seek accommodation and or permit a, a greater Chinese role in the, in the region? I think about where not only in the context of specific industry or sector, but also geography, right? I mean, this is once again, a massively diverse region with very different regions and country specific conditions. So perhaps, you know, one generalized way to, to break down the region is the north-south divide. And I think this makes sense in the context of the region's economic relationship with China. When we look at, you know, Mexico, for example, it's, it's, it's a very strong economic and otherwise partner as well of the United States. But south of Mexico, especially south of Central America, when we look at uh, Brazil, Chile, Peru, Uruguay, China has been their largest trading partner. And I've heard that uh, in a recent conversation with an Ecuadorian official that by the end of the year, China will also become Ecuador's biggest trading partner. So the trade dynamic, the economic dynamics in South America vis-a-vis -vis China is very much different from Mexico. And that's something we need to think about specifically where to push back, uh, where to consider these red lines and where the U.S. could be leading and think about where the U.S. comparative advantages lies. Perhaps one final point to add there is Last year, I co-authored a report about the future projections of the trade relationship between China and Latin America and the Caribbean. And tying that to the earlier point, Mexico is perhaps the last fortress, so to speak, keeping the U.S. economic and trade competitiveness alive in, in the regional context, and it will continue to do so. So I think the North American supply chain, the integration of the North American region is something that U.S. needs to double down on. Uh, South America, of course, uh, has a very different economic structure, and, and the complement complementarity with China is very hard to compete. How can the United States compete more efficiently with China in terms of its commercial and development engagement with Latin America and the Caribbean? Are there specific industries in which the United States can offer these viable alternatives we've been talking about? Yeah, Ryan, that's a great question. And, and once again, I think a lot of the current discussion on China often focuses on U.S. weaknesses and what China is doing better. There's a lot that U.S. is doing and the U.S. could be doing more. So on that, I think a general message here is to think about once again, the sources of U.S. strength and comparative advantages. In the commercial space, uh, yes, we know that uh, the trade relationship between China and Latin America will continue to grow. China will continue to have a strong and growing presence in the region in that area. But of course, the U.S. has a lot to offer as well. The network of very extensive existing FTAs, and China only has three FTAs with the region, uh, Chile, Peru, and Costa Rica. They're currently negotiating two, but that would still put China very much behind the U.S. when it comes to the network of FTAs. And, you know, in the current economic, in the current policy context in D.C., it's impossible to have a conversation to start a new FTA, whether whether that's at, on the executive branch of the government or on the Hill. But I do believe that there's an opportunity to modernize and synergize some of these existing FTAs in the region. That should still be doable. And a lot of these agreements are very high quality, very high world class standard setting agreements, including USMCA. In the broader trade negotiation realm, the rest of the world looks to agreements like this, for example. So I think that's certainly something that uh, the U.S. government could be thinking about. And then I do think that the uh, the APAP, the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity that was announced during the summit identified a few interesting areas where that is aligned with the U.S. comparative advantages. I think climate is a big part of it, supply chains as well, uh, public and regulatory cooperation might have been part of it as well. But obviously, uh, we'll need to see if the administration can follow up on some of these announcements and provide concrete benefits and concrete resources, like you said, uh, to make sure that APAP really expands beyond the rhetoric. And perhaps the second aspect I'll mention there is, you know, beyond commercial. One thing I said earlier is that 
to me, the one of the most important underestimated source of U.S. strength is that it has a much more multi-dimensional relationship with the region uh, compared to what China has. So, of course, trade investment is important, but the U.S. also needs to double down on some of these other areas, right? It has a broader and a deeper relationship in many ways. One thing that we're working on, for example, is thinking about disaster assistance, humanitarian assistance and, and preparedness. This is one area where U.S. has operational capacity even when you think about response time, when something like a climate disaster happened, China really cannot necessarily match that what the U.S. offers to the region. And this is a great opportunity to quote the Chinese language, a win-win for the U.S. and the region, uh, where you're working on a shared common agenda that's clearly in the interest of uh, governments on both sides and people from countries in the region. While there are common threads, the way China engages the region today is very different from, say, a decade ago. We have seen relationships with some countries become entrenched, but we have also seen some pushback as the world has been buffeted by a pandemic, war, and a series of ongoing and rolling economic shocks. How have recent developments, especially the trade and supply chain disruptions exacerbated by COVID-19, impacted China's capacity to engage the region? Can we expect China to pursue a more reserved strategy in the coming years? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So I think the trade relationship between China and Latin America continue to be extremely strong. Last year, we're looking at 400 billion figure, which is a record figure and also represent a continuous increase from, from the previous year. And we wrote more about that in the report that I referenced earlier. So uh, part, of, part of what happened last year, of course, was driven by price effects. So we'll see if that number comes down a little bit. But I think the long-term trend line points to the fact that China will continue to gain ground in Latin American Caribbean countries' overall trade, trade profile. That's what I think about the trade piece. Now, more general, when it comes to whether or not we can expect China to pursue a more reserved strategy in the coming years, China has been more reserved in recent years, especially during the pandemic years. I think the zero COVID policy within China has placed pretty significant constraints in terms of people's ability to travel internationally. That applies to government officials as well. So whether or not this policy stays the way it is and how it evolves will have a significant impact on China's diplomatic and other engagement abroad. In other engagement, we can talk about investment, for example, when a Chinese investor cannot physically visit a plan or whatever project they're interested in investing in the Latin America and the Caribbean, that obviously slows down or stifles the deal-making process. But in general, in terms of my, how much things might evolve going forward, I think that's still very much unclear. The domestic piece, as I mentioned, is a, is a is a big question. If China opens up again and resumes international travel, uh, you can also argue that you know the government will want to make up for the uh, diplomatic deficit it has suffered in the past few years in becoming even more active. So I think it's still very much an open question, and and we'll see what happens there. The United States has been advocating for nearshoring or allyshoring industries to the hemisphere as a means of decoupling its own economy from China. How has this push been received in the region? Do Western Hemisphere countries view nearshoring as a chance to reduce their dependence on China? Yeah, so I think the nearshoring reshoring conversation is, to me, it's not a new one, but it's, it's, it's currently just all the rage. Just a couple months ago, I believe it was July, Secretary Yellen made an international economic speech at the Atlantic Council using the phrase Frenchshoring, which adds on to the list of exshoring that we, uh, we've been hearing about. So I think I'll answer this question by offering my, my thoughts on some of the reshoring, nearshoring questions in the Western Hemisphere in general while tying into how the regional perceives it, which is, you know, I think the crux of your question. I do think that the reshoring, nearshoring trends represent an opportunity for the region, but I think a lot more, really, a lot more needs to be done to translate that opportunity into reality. Right now, 
it's my perception that there is a lot of unwarranted optimism that uh, some of these reshoring, nearshoring investment will just happen automatically. And countries believe they will happen so automatically that they don't really need to do the hard work to make these happen. And I think that's a that sort of complacency is a little dangerous. There's two parts to this. There are two broad set of factors that need to be in place for reshoring, nearshoring to happen meaningfully and sustainably in the region. One is what I call the international push factors, and the other is what I call the domestic pull factors. And the international push push factors, this could be what's happening in the world that's pushing supply chains out of China, out of Asia, towards the rest of the world. This could be the pandemic, this could be the U.S.-China tensions. And to your question, Ryan, this is what the U.S. government is doing, what the U.S. government could be doing to push some of these supply chains out of China. And I think the regional perception of what the U.S. has done so far on this in this regard is that there's been a lot of rhetoric there's been a lot of interesting ideas but perhaps we're still lacking a little bit in the actions we haven't seen too many follow-up actions and concrete proposals and resources to bring to push these supply chains out so that's the first point on international push factors and second you know i think perhaps even more importantly and people don't talk enough about is the domestic pull factors in latin american caribbean countries i think it's absolutely important that countries in our region undertake a lot of the important and i think belated reforms and improvements to create the conditions and, and the competitiveness necessary for attracting reshoring and reshoring investment. And a lot of these things are not new. We're talking about domestic economic fundamentals, We're talking about macroeconomic stability, regulatory legal certainty, simplicity, physical infrastructure, human capital, productivity, export promotion and facilitation. And these pieces are not in place. I, I see it very difficult for the region to, to fully capitalize on the reshoring and reshoring opportunities that we see. And then later on, you can also go into a whole new discussion about industrial policy, fiscal constraints that we have in the, in the environment, because if you look at history, you know, a lot of countries in the region have tried some sort of reshoring and reshoring, which is what we call in, important substitution industrialization. ISI was a big thing in the third quarter of, of last century in our region. And, and looking back, it seems like it has resulted in, in many cases, inefficient resource allocation than long-term success. So the way you pick winners, the way you support specific industries in the region in a transparent, efficient way, that's a that's a key question for the region. So for me, like tying this reshoring, nearshoring conversation into a broader competitiveness point is much more important. And to me, to, to, to finalize this point and answer your question, I think countries in the region should look at this more from a perspective is how do we take this as an opportunity to increase our own competitiveness, create opportunities, create jobs for people and workers in the region. Uh, reducing dependence on China is, of course, a part of it, but that shouldn't be the central focus. The central focus should be regional competitiveness. The central focus should be how do we make our economies work better and more efficiently. For the United States to effectively respond to China's growing engagement in the hemisphere, it will need more than a China strategy. Instead, the United States needs to rethink the way it works with the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean. Could you sketch for us, Pepe, in broad strokes, what the pillars of such a regional strategy might look like? Critically important question, Ryan, and, and absolutely agree that uh, a rethink is perhaps needed or at least underway to, for the United States to better navigate some of these China-related questions in the region and, and also maximize uh, and optimize its current relationship with regional partners. There's a couple of things that I think will be very important. One is there needs to be a more partnership-based approach and partnership-based relationship. And, and I mentioned that earlier when we talked about, for example, terms of engagement, right? The U.S. should not be the one or the only one determining the, the terms of engagement, especially between, for example, China and Latin America and the Caribbean. This definitely has to happen in a very collaborative way. The U.S. should be consulting more frequently with regional stakeholders. That's absolutely important. 
And one thing I'll say that the region appreciates from China is that at least uh, at, at a rhetoric level, China tends to treat countries more on equal footings, right? Whether that's from the win-win discourse or from the South-South collaboration discourse, China portrays regional stakeholders as peers and vice versa. And that's something that U.S. doesn't necessarily have. So you need to be extra careful uh, when you think about these issues. So that's the first thing I'll say, which is, you know, be more partner-like and, and be more partnership-based. And second thing is U.S. policy towards these related issues needs to be and towards Latin America in general, I think, needs to be much more affirmative instead of negative. One of my general complaints about the current state of play of U.S. policy towards Latin America and Caribbean is that it's often seen or at least reported as being negative and dominated by thorny and sometimes very toxic and insoluble issues. Sometimes, you know, we talk about migration, we talk about corruption in the region. On the other hand, when regional governments talk to China, they have easier conversation and more positive conversations, once again, focusing on the economic and development benefits of it. So that comparison certainly doesn't help with U.S. strategy. And to tie that into, 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 into your question, I think, you know, even if the end goal is to counter Chinese influence in the region, I think the communication strategy, I think, needs to be, needs to be adapted so that it is much more about Latin America and less about China. It needs to be more pro-Latin America in that sense impressed in that sense, less anti-China. And the region very much welcomes U.S. engagement. It, it, they're very excited to hear what the U.S. has to offer. They're perhaps less excited to hear about U.S. concerns about Chinese engagement. If the U.S. can highlight and just, you know, be more concrete in, in describing what it, wants to, uh, what it wants to do, what it wants to work, and what, is, what it wants to collaborate with the region on, they'll be interesting. And this actually ties into our earlier question when we talk about supply chains, right? International push factors. What are some of the specific mechanisms, resources that U.S. can put out that will facilitate some of these international push factors that will in turn facilitate reshoring, nearshoring the region. That's something we need to think about. And then perhaps finally, going back to my earlier point about U.S. relationship with the region being more multidimensional than what China has with the region, that's absolutely a, a critical dimension of U.S. competitiveness. The U.S. does a lot for the region. We talked about disaster assistance earlier. We talk about, we can also talk about vaccines vaccine donation, U.S. vaccine donations to the region for COVID-19 have been tremendous. So that's certainly something we need to think about beyond trade investment. What are some of the other areas where the U.S. has comparative advantages and where it could be competing more uh, more effectively? Pepe, is there something that we did not cover? Anything else that you would like to highlight or add? Yeah, Ryan, I guess perhaps two things. One is, you know, as we as we often inevitably do in these conversations, we talk about the region in a very... Uh, homogenous way. We talk about Latin America, Caribbean, lack as an acronym, but just to emphasize a point I made earlier and you often make, which is we need to look at this much more at the sub-regional, national, even at the sub-national level. There's so much interesting dynamics going on and generalizing the region doesn't help uh, doesn't help us in our day-to-day work and certainly doesn't help the, with the policymaking, uh, whether you're coming in from the U.S. US government perspective or the Latin American government perspective. And the second point I'll mention is we, you and I, we talked about this at one point. I think when we think about sometimes a big part of where the U.S. and Latin America, Latin American governments may not be on the same page when it comes to how they look at China, it's not just a thematic or geographic issue. I think sometimes when you think about the time horizon as well, what, what do I mean by that? I think when the regional government officials, when they, when they engage China, when they usually focus on the economic and development benefits, these are things that are much more tangible in the media. These are things that people see. These are hard, hard stuff that people see on a day-to-day basis. And then when they think about the downside risk of engaging with China, which the U.S. government you know, mentions quite a lot uh, in these conversations with regional stakeholders, we talk about China's impact on 
democratic institutions, you talk about national security concerns, you talk about government's issues, compared to the to the tangible and immediate benefits that China offers, these concerns that U.S. has and highlights, they, they seem more distant and indirect. So I think just, you know, deepening down, uh, kind of doubling down the conversation we had earlier about where we see these red lines and fault lines are, I think it's just not, it's not just a matter of the where, but it's also a matter of when. How do you bridge that mismatch on a time horizon where the Latin American government officials don't see China as an immediate threat and they focus much more on the opportunities and the benefits of it, where clearly the U.S. government is on the other side of the spectrum. Not to say if anyone's right or wrong here, but I think bridging that vision will be an important first step towards greater hemispheric collaboration and, and at least dialogue. So that's perhaps the, the second and final point I'll add, uh, complementary to, to what we talked about earlier. Pepe Zhang, Associate Director and Fellow at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsh Latin America Center. Thanks so much for joining us on 35 West today. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.